Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. We're continuing our discussion of 107's blueprint for operations today. This is the framework that we realized we use at 107 in our daily work. And as I've said before, we're now documenting it, speaking about it, and we'll be open sourcing all of it this summer. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on the human element. In my experience at 10.7, it's simply not enough to have the right tools in place for every aspect of the software development process. Not only are you trying to build something on a deadline for someone you hope will love what you're creating, but you're also working with a vast array of tools and about a million different moving pieces. And you're doing that with other people who have the same number of variables coming at them at any given time. The ability to get on well with your colleagues to truly work as a team really makes a difference in getting to the same destination at about the same time. The team dynamics, the company dynamics, this thing we call culture, turns out to be very important in the blueprint for operations. So today we're going to spend some time digging into the human element of the blueprint. And returning to the podcast is Eric Zakovich, the principal consultant at Employee Strategies, an organizational development firm here in Minneapolis whose mission is to create great places to work. Eric, it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the podcast. I'm really excited to be back. To be a second-time guest means that the first one wasn't, wasn't too bad. So I'm honored to be here <laughs> and uh, excited to talk about this, uh, this the blueprint topic. Yes, thank you. It's, it's wonderful to, to have you with us again. Um, I've been really excited about Blueprint and the fact that we're collaborating together on, on mm-hmm. a project for a client. It's a treat for me, actually. It's, it's not only fun, it's uh, finding a new way to add value uh, to clients that I think is even greater, you know, that collaboration produces something that's even greater than, than one person could do on their own. Um, so putting our, our minds together to help a client uh, is really special to me. So thanks. Yeah, special to me too. What do they say? The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I think that's kind of how it feels to me as well. Yeah, that's a, you said it much simpler and clearer than I did. I didn't come up with those words, though. So, <laughs> so uh, in, in prepping for this podcast, um, we were kind of just talking ahead of time that you don't really know what a blueprint is. I mean, we're collaborating mm-hmm. together. Um, we're putting our minds um, in, in and trying to solve something for a client that has some problems. And I think what we realized at 10.7 is we don't really have... Um, good documentation around what our process is internally that includes the non-technical software development stuff. Maybe we should talk a bit about what Blueprint is first, and then we can kind of get into what I was hoping to get into later on. I was thinking about it and trying to make, uh, it's like when you live something, but you don't know you're living it. And when you can articulate it or explain it or learn, like learn what it is that you're experiencing, you know, it deepens your ability to make an impact. So yeah, I was, I was super curious to kind of get into what is Blueprint? Why did you decide it? How did this happen? Yeah, that's a good question. It's the name we've chosen for this thing. 
Um, one of them was manifesto. And we decided that those weren't good descriptors of this thing we're doing. Framework is a good word as well. But when you say framework, at least in our industry, we think of software development frameworks and we didn't really want to be biased. Blueprint is a way of describing how 107's team operates to make our clients happy. And it encapsulates not just the DevOps, kind of the way we get software from a developer's computer out into the real world, but it also talks about the tools we use to communicate as a distributed team, the tools we use to manage the issues that come up in the process of getting code live, the tools we use to manage passwords and share credentials with clients and amongst team members. And most importantly, it, it also includes the human dynamic, the human element, the how people interact and what the best way to interact is. It's a recipe for how a team might work and what tools it might use, but it's not a prescription for the exact medicine mm -hmm. that will fix your particular issue. So, you know, a concrete example is password management. In the blueprint, password management is an important aspect. So the blueprint would say, your team and the people you work with need to have a way of sharing passwords securely. They need to have the right permissions set so that the right members of the team have right access to the right credentials. But it isn't going to say you have to use one password or you have to use LastPass. It might suggest a couple of solutions and give examples of how they might be implemented but it's not going to be strictly prescriptive on which solution to use. Mm -hmm. At 10.7, we happen to use one password. So that's what our experience is. At employee strategies, if you were to implement this, you might choose something else. Mm -hmm. Hearing you describe that, it connects very much to my work. I think when I'm working with teams or uh, with individuals, we don't have a, here's the ground rules you need to have as a team. We have sort of some principles that we certainly operate by, you know, one of which when working with a team, they have to have a way to have conflict. Uh, some teams, it's appropriate to use really strong language. So when people are, you know, talking, they're very direct with each other. They might use <laughs> words that you'd hear on a playground or in a very rough setting and others that would be completely inappropriate. So teams have to figure out what is the right language, what is the right way that we talk to each other, what is the right way we deal with differences. And so I'm always trying to help them uncover what is the right way for them and not prescribing for them a, a specific way of doing it. What do you call that? Do you call it a framework or a recipe or what's the word you use? I mean, we have something that we follow called our proven process. Our proven process is it's the way we consult with clients and guide them along the journey. You know, so we're always seeking to understand the system first. So we're digging in, we're doing some kind of assessment. And then we're determining what a, a potential solution might be. Uh, we're implementing that solution, we're checking on it, right? But that's always tweaked and customized to that client's environment, that context, because that really matters. 
so I mean, we call it a proven process, proven but it's process. yeah, it's the process we get. But I don't know if we have necessarily a. Uh, I like the word blueprint because it's kind of like we gotta we gotta design the house, we gotta build build the house, and here's here's the plan. Here's how we're gonna. Here's how we're planning on doing it. Mm-hmm. And you can choose whatever stucco color you like, or whatever brick you like, or whatever wood you like. We just know that we need a wall, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, to, to play out your, that house analogy a little further, sometimes you're building in a, a rocky terrain. Sometimes you're in Northern California, you got to build on the side of a cliff practically. Sometimes you're in the plains of Nebraska and it's flat and maybe it's sandy. You know, you just got different environments you're doing this stuff in. And so picking the right approach for your environment, I think is really important. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to help clients with. I think so. I think that's what we're trying to do. And I think the basic premise of the blueprint is that tools aren't enough. It's nice that you can choose one password for password management. It's great that you decide to use Git and Slack and Jira, but putting those in place and processes in place isn't enough for them to be used or even used successfully. It's kind of the team dynamics that are an important part of that as well. So we need to be cognizant of that. The greatest thing that I ever got from employee strategies was the realization that there was a method and a formalism and data and science behind how people interact and how people get classified and categorized. And I know there are very many theories around this, and it sounds like Employee Strategies has decided to focus on one of them, at, at least in my experience, and you, know, you could speak a whole lot better to whether or not that's true or not. My understanding is that you guys have based this consulting around the five behaviors of a cohesive team. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to hear if I, if I actually understand that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a follow-up question that confuses me, and that's about the five dysfunctions of a cohesive team. And I would love to hear you talk about uh, the differences between those as well. So you're, you're talking about sort of our, we have a belief that there are certain you know, commonalities that must exist within a team environment. So team environment, um, take a second to define that. For anybody who's who's listening in or maybe works very independently or has some maybe limited experience working with a team. Um, but a team environment is where people have to work cooperatively towards some goal. They, you know, together they have to produce the results. They really couldn't do it independently, um, or maybe on the scale that they need to independently. So, you know, that that's sort of my definition as a team is a group of people that have to work together to achieve something. We believe that there are basically five components that make up an effective team. Uh, The absence of any of those components will result in a team getting suboptimal results or not, not even close to the results thereafter. So those five dysfunctions that you referenced are when they're absent or they're not working well. And when they, the five behaviors are there, that's when they do exist. So I'll, I'll take a moment and kind of walk through that if that makes sense to you. Please do. And I think you're leading into the discussion of the pyramid that mm-hmm. we've been using. Absolutely. So we use this pyramid model and at the base of this pyramid, and when you think about a pyramid, what makes it such a strong structure, something you can't topple over. You think of the Egyptian pyramids, they're still there and they have I been sure there are. for thousands of years. 
you can't knock them over. <laughs> pyramid is a very stable, strong structure. At the base of this pyramid, the, the base of what makes an effective team an effective team is trust. So that's the first behavior of a cohesive team is the existence of a strong, trusting um, foundation upon which everything else is dependent. Absent that, there is a lack of trust or no, you know, a little trust or damaged trust. You know, when, when, you have, when a team has that, it can't engage in the other behaviors. That's the first dysfunction or behavior, depending on the, which, what's going on. If it's, if it's working, it's, the, it's a behavior of a cohesive team. If it's not working, then it's a dysfunction. Got it. So layer on top of trust, the second one that we look for when we're working with teams is, can the team engage in productive conflict? Some people hear the term conflict and it makes them very uncomfortable. <laughs> we both live in the Midwest, Yvonne, and, and you know how people are here. <laughs> yes, I do. Conflict is a really dirty word here, it's isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, so no, no, nobody here likes it. I know other parts of the world like really embrace conflict. We don't. So people hear that word and they get a little bit fearful. And, and the way we try to reframe thinking about conflict and, and we call it productive, we want teams to have productive conflict. There are differences of opinion. That's natural. That's normal. That's healthy. The best teams have differences of opinion. The best teams also um, don't shy away from that conflict. They get into it. They, they talk about what's going on. They challenge each other's ideas and opinions. They do it in a, in a way that maintains safety. Say so there's this little line that if you if you cross the line, you know, maybe you, you damage a relationship. If you've got that trust that we talked about, that foundation, that's okay. You can recover from that. Got it. Less effective teams or teams that are dysfunctional, they can't do that. So people hesitate and because they know, they know I can't I can't cross this line. They'll hesitate to to share their differences of opinion or they'll hold they'll hold back and they'll walk out of that meeting and say, you know, this is never gonna work. You know, Yvonne didn't think about this thing and they should have brought it up in the meeting, but they didn't. They didn't. And so, so, so the that, trust, the trust level has an element of vulnerability to be able to engage in that kind of conflict. Cause you kind of have to put yourself out there mm-hmm. to have that productive conflict. You know, I'm glad you used that word vulnerability. I mean, that is the kind of trust that we're talking about. There's predictive trust. That's the kind of trust where, you know, any two people who work together know how each other are going to act. You know, if you work together long enough, you'll, you'll figure it out. I know Tony's going to be late with his assignment because he's always late with his assignment. Or I know Spencer's going to come through because she always comes through. Uh, you know, we have predictive trust that, that exists. But what we're talking about with teams is we want vulnerability-based trust. That's the kind of trust where people say, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing right now. Or I'm not sure this is going to work. Or I'm not good at that. Or I need help. Um, when teams can do that, that's the kind of trust that, that can, you know, really propel them. So that, that enables conflict. You can have that kind of productive conflict if people are willing to, like you said, put themselves out there. So the base is trust with a splash of vulnerability mm-hmm. and productive conflict on top yep. of that. The next row, the middle of the pyramid must be based on those two bottom ones. They have to exist to be able to have the third part. Yeah, absolutely. So the third part is cohesive teams will be able to commit to a goal or to a course of action, whereas dysfunctional teams will not be able to do that. 
or they'll say they commit, but they really never do. They don't follow through. They find reasons why something can't happen. They don't overcome the obstacles that get in their way. So the best teams, the teams that have trust, once you engage in that productive conflict, you can commit to a course of action. So that's the third behavior is, is true commitment to a goal, to your purpose, to your cause. You can't get there without, I like to say, you have to be able to weigh in to buy in. So when teams can engage in that productive conflict and weigh in on what are we doing and why are we doing it and is it the right thing, they can truly commit. If they don't do that, it's hard, hard for people to. So you basically cons- you're committing to the destination and mm-hmm. where you're going, um, but you might not agree with the path that you're taking. But because the team has come to an understanding that that's the path they're going to take, you're going to come along for the ride because you were able to trust your team and have that productive conflict to take that path and commit to going there. Absolutely. I had an old mentor who used to say, people need to see themselves in the family photo. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you can see your idea in the picture or you know that it was at least on the table and considered and maybe you went, the team went a different way. If you can see that, then, then you can really buy into that, that vision, that purpose, that goal. So what's the next one, the fourth behavior? So once we've got something that we're committed to, we can hold each other accountable to that. So without clarity around what we've committed to, we can't be accountable to any result or any set of behaviors or any, you know, any goals. So without that commitment, we can't get to accountability. So once we have accountability, team members will say, hey, I thought you were going to do X. Where's that at? What help do you need? Or hey, I know I'm on the hook for this. It's going to be late. Or, hey, I'm going to need some other resources. When teams are truly accountable, and I'm talking about like team accountability here, not just individual hold a person's feet to the fire, but the team takes responsibility. The team takes accountability for getting the results. People are more willing to share resources, put their um, maybe their smaller goals, their smaller objectives to the side, so that the team can achieve its, its, bigger, its bigger goals. So that kind of accountability only exists when the other three are really present. And it feels like the last one, results, is kind of what the destination is, right? So the fifth mm-hmm. behavior is results, and it doesn't feel like you can have true team results if you haven't been able to accomplish the other four underlying pieces of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. It is. And to even sharpen that focus on the results the cohesive team versus the dysfunctional team. Dysfunctional team gets distracted by the shiny objects. Dysfunctional team kind of gets blown from side to side, depending on what's new happening or the latest emergency or the latest issue. The truly cohesive team stays laser focused on the results that they need. They, they don't, it's not that they aren't aware of these other things that are happening, but they make sure they get them. That is sort of the difference, I think, between that cohesive and that dysfunctional team. Dysfunctional team gets easily distracted. Cohesive team um, reminds themselves that they've got, they've got a bigger result, a bigger, you know, something bigger that they've committed to. And they are, they are hyper-focused yeah. on, on that. So just to kind of summarize, so the bottom of the pyramid is trust, the vulnerable kind of trust that produces... Um, positive conflict that you can you can commit to right so it goes trust conflict commitment for the team accountability 
and then laser focus on uh, results. Couldn't have said it better in fewer words. <laughs> <laughs> You're so nice. It's, it's <laughs> awesome. I just think I like saying things back because it um, really solidifies my understanding of, um, of the pyramid and of anything. And, it, and I'm, I'm glad I got it right. So yeah. presumably there's, and I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway, mm-hmm. presumably there's a way to measure these behaviors, right? And um, how do we measure them? We measure them by asking team members who are on the team. So we administer, you know, a a very short 20 question survey, uh, basically asks teammates to rate how the team is doing on those five behaviors. We don't say, you know, do you trust Devon? But what we do ask is about behaviors linked to that. So um, questions like, uh, is the team willing to engage in unfiltered debate? Uh, Will a team member call out another's for uh, their performance? So we ask some questions to help understand whether these behaviors, you know, these behaviors are present or not. So that's how we measure them. And you do that as a team assessment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We ask each team member their opinion and cause there's different, you know, if there's 10 people on a team, there's probably 10 different opinions, but we get a good sense of, you know, where the team is at. Sometimes there's, different views of how that team is working. Some people think it's going great and some people think eh, not so much or somewhere in the middle. The team assessment is based on some theory and some data that is connected to, or maybe it's even the part of the five behaviors of a cohesive team book. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. The book is uh, authored by, you know, one of the, I think the true visionaries in this field, Patrick Lencioni. The book is uh, initially came out. It was called The Five Dysfunctions of a, of a Team. It was a parable about a team. So it was a story mm. about a team that had five problems, you know, five dysfunctions. And he uses that story to kind of connect with people, you know, some of the typical problems that teams have. From that, he really developed a process for, for helping those teams improve. We've taken that. We use his assessment uh, as part of our toolkit. So we use that assessment uh, through a partnership we have with them and a really you know, impactful assessment for our clients. It's not just a team assessment. So you will also do an individual assessment mm-hmm. as a member of the team. And I've had experience with Myers-Briggs in the past, and I know that other people listening will have heard of ENSJ and IFTJP, RST, whatever the letters are. <laughs> ABCDEFG, um, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but the Myers-Briggs is not the individual assessment that you do. You do something else called a DISC analysis. Can you talk me through how, what the DISC analysis is and maybe how it relates to the team assessment? You know, we use it for two big things, two big purposes. One, team members, I like to say that Great teams are made up of self-aware individuals. <laughs> so when people know themselves really well, they're better able to say, hey, I struggle with this thing. I, I struggle with talking to um, clients about problems they're having, or I'm struggling with figuring out a plan to deal with this issue. So if you know yourself or maybe know some of your, um, your patterns, you know how you behave in different situations, or you know how you behave in in stress, you can adjust your behavior and other people can help you with that. So know thyself first 
And then once you know your teammates' behavior and how your team teammates prefer to, to work and think and act, maybe you don't demonize them quite so much. <laughs> so it's not that, boy, Eric just doesn't care about the details. It's that Eric is focused on moving quickly and doesn't always you know, think through his plans. So I can help Eric with that. Teams that understand, you know, their disc styles, that's how we used it, is we, we help people understand their self and their teammates. The tool, the disc, is psych, it's a psychological uh, test to just test for, you know, your, your tendencies when you're faced with different situations. I don't know if that fully answered your question. I feel it like does. I took a left turn and then a right turn and a left <laughs> yeah, so. so So the disc analysis, much like the Myers-Briggs, is a psychological uh, profile of an individual, but it also, um, if you put a number of different disc profiles together, maybe in conjunction with a team assessment, mm-hmm. you would be able to tell how certain individuals might react to behaviors of other individuals on the team. And this formalism will help you, um, maybe be change your pattern of behavior or maybe not just change your pattern of behavior, but understand why others are behaving in a certain way. Yeah. That's, you know, really, I'm glad you brought that up. When a team has the mix of styles on a team creates maybe a team behavior or it does create a team behavior. Um, By understanding that, by looking at how team members interrelate with each other, how they work together, you'll start to see how some of these you know, some of the challenges that a team might be having can kind of manifest themselves. It, it gives team members um, a way to, to, to talk about what's going on. So it gives them a language for it. I don't know about every team out there, but a number of the ones that I end up working with, you know, they don't always have a way to, to talk about what they're feeling, but it gives them some words to express what's going on and they can resolve the issues then. So the, the disc style definitely helps you understand and, and get some insights into how, you know, how teams can adjust their styles, adjust their behaviors to be more productive with each other, uh, more effective. Would you mind spending just a little bit of time describing what the disc itself mm-hmm. is? It's a circle that has four quadrants yes. and humans, people that we work with and ourselves, we're, we're basically dot somewhere on the circle. And depending yeah. on where you are, you have, you are more likely to have certain traits associated with the position in the circle. If you imagine, like you said, some sort of some sort of grid, or it's a you know we use it, it's a circumplex. So Google that if you're if you're not sure. It's <laughs> circumplex. <laughs> if you Google disk and circumplex, you'll see it. There's a there's a lot of people out there that that are um, interested in this in this model and in this theory. It's been very useful for um, over 40 years. Um, it's been used in business for over 40 years. A lot of professional settings. Think of the vertical axis. So if you're at home, you know, draw a line up and down on a piece of paper. And at the top of that axis, you know, if you're the kind of person that is sort of action oriented, I say, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. <laughs> um, you like to get going. Let's get started. Let's, let's move quick. You know, you're really thinking about, you know, moving fast. You know, you're at the top of, you know, this, this line that you've driven, you know, drawn on your piece of paper, the, the northern, northernmost point. Or you might be the kind of person at the other end of that line, uh, this north-south line. So you're at the southern point. You're the kind of person who might like to have a plan. 
might like to think things through, maybe get some reflection time built in or do some thinking on it or collect some data. So you're, you're that kind of a person, you know, you're ready, aim, 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 <laughs> aim, let's double check <laughs> and then, you know, and then fire. So uh, you're more patient uh, kind of a, kind of a person on that end of the spectrum, or you might be somewhere anywhere in between on that line. You know, people are very complex. So that would be the North South axis of this, of this model, the East West axis uh, on that side of the disc. Think of yourself, if you're the kind of person who is um, more interested maybe in information and data, um, you're, you're, you know, you like to make sure you have the right, you know, the right intelligence, the right information to be able to make a decision or to solve a problem. So you'd be on the left or the west side. On the other side of that um, line, so we've drawn that, you know, line is intersecting here. So the right or the east, you are the kind of person who's more people-oriented. You might be often thought of as like an extrovert. You get energy from people. Um, you're more accepting. You're usually fairly warm, kind of a warm person. So, you know, contrasted with, again, on the, on the western side, you're more skeptical. The, the western left side is, is the skeptical side. You're questioning. You're skeptical. Challenging. On the other side, you're, yeah, challenging. Great word. On the east, you're... You're open. You're warm. So More collaborative. So you you see that this has created four quadrants of people. So on the upper left, <laughs> northwest quadrant. Northwest quadrant. Yep, it is uh, D style, and D style stands for dominance. Uh, dominant style people are um, very driven, results oriented. They want to. They move quick. When I say when they wake up in the morning, they think, oh boy, I can't wait to get to work because there's all sorts of problems to solve. I'm going to solve several of them probably on the way to work. <laughs> um, they're very confident. Again, they move quick. They kind of take no prisoners sometimes. So that's the D dominant style. Now we'll go around the clock here. So okay. we're going to go, now this would be the northeast quadrant. Yep. So upper top right. right. That's the I. This is an influencer style. Influencer styles, they're, um, you know, when they wake up in the morning, they're on their way to work. They're thinking, oh boy, I can't wait to get to work because there's all sorts of fun people to work with. And I've got that meeting over lunch with uh, Yvonne and that's going to be great. And we're going to get started. We're, we've got this big kickoff to a project that we're going to do together in the afternoon. And, um, oh yeah. We're going to record a podcast. We're going we're gonna to record a podcast. <laughs> and it'll be fun because why not? Why not? Yeah. They also get results and they want to get fast results, but they're, they're focused on getting the results through people. So, so they're, these are sometimes the people that are you know, natural salesmen. They're very energetic, very bubbly, probably talk with their hands a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Says Ivan, waving his hands. On the lower right then, so shifting again, we're going around the clock here. So South we're like... East a, corner. Yeah, three, four, five, six o'clock in that, in that range there. Yeah, yeah. Southeast, bottom right. It's the steadiness style. So again, these are warm people. They're often not so quick paced. They're a little more planful, methodical. When they wake up in the morning, they're, they often wake up a, a bit earlier than other people. They're thinking about changes. Have we thought enough about the impact of these changes on people? Have we considered how this is going to affect our customer, our client, 
Have we considered how this is going to impact employees? Isn't this going to be really stressful? Boy, don't we have a lot of change happening right now? So they're thinking a lot about change and specifically how it's going to impact various groups of people. So that's the steadiness style. Some people say the greatest listeners exist in that steadiness quadrant. Uh, so if you move all the way one more over, um, so we're at like six, seven, eight, you know, almost nine, nine o'clock here. Yeah. And this would be the lower left-hand corner or southwest. This is the conscientious style. So conscientious style is otherwise known as C style. You know, when they wake up in the mor- uh, for work in the morning and they're on their way and they're thinking about, oh boy, today's the day we're going to get that data. That is going to, I can analyze that data. I can spend time with that data. I'll really understand it. And then we'll be able to make the right decisions. We'll be able to move forward on the project. We'll be able to get the right plans in place to execute this flawlessly. If you're a Star Trek fan, this is Spock. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, very thoughtful, planful, logical. Logical. Yeah, logical is probably the best word to describe. Once accuracy and perfection. Absolutely. Yes, accuracy is very important. Being viewed as competent is very important to this style. You know, that makes your way around the, the horn there. That's D, I, S, and C. And that's how we get the disc, you know, uh, name. That helps you understand that these are four basic categories of people. Obviously, people are more complex than that, but it gives us the start of the assessment. And the assessment, you know, really dives in and helps people um, understand even better, um, more about themselves and some of the nuances that makes up them. But for audio podcasts, this has probably already confused a few people. (laughs) I I hope not. Maybe not. And if you're following along in the the show notes and in the transcript, um, we'll have links to the various official documents that describe these and pictures and so on. So I'm sure there'll be, you know, readers or listeners that'll follow those links and find out more what makes me really glad we, we went down this path with employee strategies is that it truly made me more aware of how, or of how other people on the team actually behave and how selfishly how I can change or um, interpret that behavior. And mm-hmm. so if I, if I go back to what we were saying a whole lot earlier on is we were talking about this pyramid which was how the team functions and what our general goal is and getting there and how we get there with this basis of trust. So that was the team assessment. And, and the individual assessment, that's the disk analysis that we've chosen to use, intersects and works so nicely with this pyramid because it allows me to think about how I interact with the people I do on a daily basis who are on that team and allows me to make that experience for myself and for them a whole lot better so we can get to those results that we're chasing off. The way I think about other people's interactions with me when I know where they are on the disk analysis compared to where I know I am on the disk analysis really helps me understand their behaviors. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, going through this process with you of figuring out where we are in this pyramid, but also where each individual on the 10-7 team is on this disc really is useful. And so what I noticed was that um, if we talk about the 10-7 disc, 
a majority of the people on our team are in the lower lower left quadrant, so the um, C. So mm-hmm. the more planful, the more desire to check, and as you said, ready, aim, 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 do another double check, then fire. That's really wonderful that we have the majority of the team there, but it does uh, kind of beg the question of, where is the rest of the team? And how does a team that's clustered around one mm-hmm. quadrant of this analysis, how is that different than another team that might be spread out across a disk? When you're all in one, or if you're predominantly in a specific characteristic, you know, there's, a, there's an old saying, you know, any strength overused becomes a weakness. And yeah. so uh, a team that might be clustered in one, one region and then doesn't adjust its style if it didn't adjust its style. And we're all adults and we all should, we should all adjust our style to different situations. So because Eric's an IS and I'm a blend of two styles, if I just am always that, boy, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm missing out on some opportunities to be effective. So a team, if it doesn't adjust its style, if it, it doesn't come up with strategies for, you know, responding to emergencies, that could be a problem for a, you know, a, a, a conscientious style team or a team that's dominated by that style. You know, do they move quick enough when a problem arises? Are they over, you know, overanalyzing things? You know, I'm going to be overanalyzing everything. You know, having too many plans in place could prevent you from just adapting and going with the flow a little bit in, in situations that call for it. If you're overdoing it, that gets in your way of getting the results that you want, right? And so hopefully having that language and having that awareness, it sounds like that's helped your team. But I, my hope is that that exists for all teams. If all teams can take a step back and, and really look at that and, and decide if they need to adjust their styles. If they adjusted their styles, could they get even better results? Teams that have that, I think you described it almost as like a natural advantage where they've got all different styles just naturally intermixing, that can be great or it can be a source of conflict too. Interesting. Yeah, if teams don't have the language to talk about it, if they don't recognize that they have this diversity of styles and appreciate that, or if they don't have, you know, if management isn't aware of it, maybe management has a preferred style there you know, and they don't have a way to talk about that, that difference, that can get in their way too. So it can, it can be increase the conflict on the team, the stories they tell about each other. A team that's clustered has to flex so that they can reach the other quadrants of the disk analysis. Does that mean that maybe a team that's scattered on the disk doesn't feel the need then to flex at all because there are other people on the team that should be contributing that aspect of the disc. Well, you're going to hate this answer. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It depends on the team. It depends on the team and the needs of the team. You know, the work is the work. Any style can get results. I I described the I style as maybe a natural salesperson. Mm-hmm. I know some wonderful salespeople who are C styles, which is the opposite of that I style. They plan, they prepare, they think through the conversation. They never go to a sales meeting without knowing exactly the answer to every question that they might get asked. Yeah. So I think a, a team member and a, a, you know, a, a team probably needs to adjust to the work and think about what's needed in the work and 
So it may or may not mean that they have a, you know, better results or easier time. It just depends on, you know, the maturity of the team members and, and the work. So I want to kind of bring it back to the beginning and kind of just remind us, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about the human element on a team? I just want to say that part of the blueprint for operations is how a team works with each other and how individuals work on the team. The other parts of it are mostly logistical. They're mostly descriptions of particular processes, particular tools, particular ways of doing things that we've had luck with, that we've experienced, that we've adopted as best practices from other places. This is the part that talks about how the humans and the people on this team actually interact with those tools and those processes. And my feeling is that this is an important part of the blueprint because it will And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if you don't get this part right, your adoption of those tools and those processes on our team is likely to be worse than if you had this in place. That's my observational assessment. I think it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, you know, you could probably speak to more, more to that. I think you're on a pretty strong branch there. You might, this password manager, you, you know, if you don't pick the right tool for you, your process might be clunky, overly cumbersome, or not secure enough, or you might encounter some problems if you don't engage in the right conflict. And, and when you've got issues that come up, deal with them and move on. I think having the ability to perform as a team and to engage as a team increases the likelihood that, that your adoption is going to be more successful and also that your, your team performance and the, the, the sustaining of it will be, you know, successful. You're essentially assuring your investment. Because it's not cheap to change. You no. know, you're, picking, you're buying new tools. You're investing in changing processes, which t- takes away from doing other things, maybe serving your customers, your clients, or doing the work. So, you know, make it stick. I think you have to make it stick. And this is, you know, the what you're just describing here is it's, it's a way to make, make sure that your investment pays off for you. So I think it's really smart of a leader to do that. There's so much more we could talk about, Eric, but um, I think we're reaching the end of our podcast. I, will you come back and um, let's talk some more? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, the, the next thing I want to talk about is Simon Sinek and the golden circle and um, ground rules for meetings and above the line and below the line of behavior it might not necessarily be exactly part of the blueprint series. Maybe it is. We can, we can figure that out. But I love that whole sentiment from Simon that people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about that whole why statement and how it's important to have something to coalesce around. I'd, I'd be thrilled to come on. Yeah. If you can't get Simon, I'll be, I'm a great second <laughs> option. <laughs> <laughs> I think Simon is, uh, <laughs> we'll try. i tell you what. And then you, no, you know what? You? I'm better. Yeah. I'm totally better. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for spending your precious time with me. No, thank you for having me. It's a, uh, it's always a, a joy to connect with you and, and work with you. And so thank you for having me on. I, it's been an honor. It's my pleasure. So Employee Strategies is online at esync.mn. That's E-S-I-N-C dot M-N. 
visit their website to find out more. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com/podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening.